Hello everyone, welcome back to the unofficial Game Pass podcast. This time we are looking at a spoiler-related review of the Control uh, Remedies game from 2019. So if you want a spoiler-free review for this, you can go and check that out. It should be linked in the description below, or you can check our channel out for that as well. Bearing that in mind, we're going to be talking really in-depth about this now, uh, given there are no constraints to what we can or cannot say, and I know Connor is uh, dying to you know get some spicy hot takes out for this episode uh, so without further ado uh, do you want to sort of kick us off there connor oh yeah yeah i'm i'm all about the spicy hot takes <laughs> but uh, you know okay so you start the game you're jesse faden you're in this building and she is addressing someone it, it appears in her head mm. now when I started this up, I was thinking, oh, is she addressing us as the gamer? Because she's saying, you know, why did you bring me here? And she's talking to, well, it appears like she's talking to you for a lot of it. I thought, oh, they could be doing like a meta thing where there's like a supernatural link between the gamer and Jesse Faden. You know, that would be interesting. Hmm. Uh, but you later find out that she is living with... Oh, I, I'm going to find this hard to explain because I didn't read the extended stuff. She's living with what I would call an entity called Polaris in her head. Yeah. Um, do you have any other information? Oh, yeah. So, and she met Polaris when her and Dylan, her brother, in their hometown of Ordinary, interacted with an object of power, which is the film projector. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, she must have become bound or connected to this, this entity called Polaris. So that is, that is the first thing to note. The second thing to note is that Dylan Faden has been in the Federal Bureau of Control. They've kept him as a candidate to become director because I assume that director has to have some sort of um, uh, abilities or susceptibility to the supernatural. Mm -hmm. And because of this event, I, I imagine that Dylan has been made sensitive. But ultimately, he is not appropriate to become director because he has attacked members of the bureau and is sort of you know deemed unstable mm -hmm. and as jesse faden you're you're going in and you're asking these federal employees where your brother is and you're getting little bits of information at a time and i don't feel the story ever really picks up until you get to the point where you're looking actively for dylan I feel that before that, I don't really feel there is a story. There's talk about her brother. There's talk about the director. Mm -hmm. um, but m most of these things seem, seem vague and they seem almost against what you're doing as a player in the missions. And it's not until like the missions actually cross over with the story and you actively go looking for Dylan or you go looking for the projector that I feel that the story gets rolling. Yeah, but I'll pass off to you. I'll pass off to you and and hear your thoughts. Yeah, no, I I definitely agree with you on that 
on that sentiment anyways because uh, as we kind of touched on a little bit or at least I mentioned a little bit in the spoiler free review that there's elements of the story where you're kind of feeling like she forgets about Dylan completely uh, especially uh, you could kind of understand it maybe for someone um, uh, when you meet Emily at the beginning obviously she doesn't know anything about Dylan so she's not going to have much information surrounding him and the same with oh, my, oh, the name of the, the guard down in uh, down at the core, kind of, his name escapes me, but uh, again, he has no... Arish? Sorry? Is it Arish? Um, is it... Yes, yes it is, yeah. Um, But obviously he has no relation to Dylan either. But the one character that always sort of stumped me as to why she didn't pursue Dylan with more of a sort of a... Uh, with more of an attitude than she did was Marshall, because Marshall knows about Dylan, she knows where he is, she knows you know the most things about him and you know constantly throughout the story jesse's telling us that you know like oh, i don't feel at home as the director you know i'm not here for for this and i just want to i want to find my brother and then when she's presented with this golden opportunity to find her brother she's like oh yeah no i'll I'll go and i'll help you clear out these random hiss in this random area uh, and then we can go talk about you know what i actually came here for uh, which makes very little sense to me from a story perspective um and like, because obviously yeah. there's no other character she can really turn to because obviously Trench has died. You know, you can't find Casper Darling. Uh, Tomasi is very much, you know, already corrupted by the hiss. Um, so Marshall is very much sort of, um, you know, out of the, well, as they describe in the game, the old boys club, uh, despite being a woman. She is the last of all of them. Um, and like, you know, if I was Jesse, I'd be like, please come here. I am now the director. Do this for me. But she's like, no, no, I have to, you know, still play second fiddle despite being the head of the Bureau, which makes no sense at all. Uh, that's the that's what probably one of the main gripes I have with the story anyways. Yeah, and it definitely, you know, it really gets interesting for me when Dylan comes into the picture because you go into where all the candidates, or not the candidates, but the subjects are contained, and Dylan is P6. Mm-hmm. And you go to his cell, and you find that he's written on the, the glass wall, your your name, Jesse, in blood. And you get a call from uh, Emily saying that Dylan has handed himself in uh, back at the executive area. Now... Dylan in this game is possessed by the hiss. They've already got to him. They've changed him. Though he appears different. So I I don't know if we ever get to see Dylan in this game. Because mm. throughout it, the hiss has corrupted him. I don't know what your thought is. Because obviously he is different from the others is some of his personality, you know... Well, I, I think that's probably an ambiguous point, you know. How mad is he? Is is he actually insane and unstable and and dangerous? Or is he just seeming that way with the, with the hiss now in his head? Mm-hmm. At least to me, from my understanding of the story, I would always... So, on one case, uh, obviously Polaris is linked to the projector... And in another sense as well, so is the hiss. Um, and from my theory or speculation of it anyways, is that with them both being subjected to the projector, the hiss has latched onto Dylan and Polaris has latched onto Jesse. So both of them are, in their own sense, uh, one is very much controlled by the hiss 
where the other one is very much immune to it. Um, so it kind of pr- presents this almost yin and yang sort of balance between both of them. But obviously, Jesse doesn't want that conflict. And I think that's a that's the interesting inner story surrounding it. And yeah, that's that's pretty much all I have to say on that bit, really. Yeah, definitely. I feel that in some ways the the story ceased to really make sense for me at a certain point. <clears throat> Excuse me, um, because it becomes clear that somehow Darling activates the projector and they let the hiss in. Mm-hmm. So your main objective becomes find the projector, close it, shut the hiss out. Now, at a certain point, things did stop making sense to me because Jesse, and maybe you can help me with this, Aldrin, probably you're more acquainted with the plot than I am Mm -hmm. there's this point where you're deactivating the rings because Jesse believes Polaris is inside this uh, containment sphere Mm -hmm. what actually happens when she deactivates all the rings and that sphere collapses so story wise what happens is Polaris is then uh, you know the only thing that was really protecting Polaris from occupation from the hiss was i think it's the hedron is what it's called i can't fully remember what it's called um yeah but once that once that's destroyed um polaris is pretty much fair game to uh, the hiss Uh, and the only the only reason uh, i think i think actually what we touched on is you know where you were mentioning in the previous episode is you know uh, the the sort of lifeless husks that are flying there what are they doing and i think we get a good insight into what it might look like because obviously after that you've the scene with jesse where she's you know getting stuff for the director or like photocopying stuff left right and center and i in my head that's what i imagine all those people are doing they're just kind of acting out scenarios in their head while they're controlled by the hiss um and jesse is very much under that control until a piece of polaris actually manages to survive and cleanse the hiss from jesse uh, it, I think it's by just some dumb luck. I don't think there's um, much of a reason given behind how this part managed to survive, uh, but that's very much the element that happens. Uh, that that that's what it causes, and obviously then we see afterwards that Dylan has become fully engrossed by the hiss, uh, and and they're trying to then corrupt uh, the board. Who, um, for all of us who know, uh, who have played the game, is sort of like this mystical entity. The upside down black triangle uh, that kind of controls the bureau of control that's not an oxymoron um but yeah so pretty much what happens in that scenario is that yes jesse is taking under the control of the hiss for a brief period until uh, regaining control through uh, through a slight element of polaris that managed to survive yeah it almost feel like the the story from that point rushes to an end I feel I feel like you you have uh, some interaction with the hiss before getting to the projector, and and then at the end, basically, you shut it down, and and Dylan is left in this very unstable, fragile state. For me, it, it was sort of surprising when it ended there. It was like, oh, is that it? Is that you know, is it over? Hmm. Um. Because, you know, again, there are questions left unanswered, at least for me. I don't know if you have any oh, more yeah. perspective. <laughs> 100%. Yeah. 
um, you know, what happened to Darling, first of all. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it almost feels like they're setting this up for... Well, maybe they were setting it up for the DLC. I haven't played them, so maybe. But definitely more games. Um, hmm. I, maybe I, maybe I, that's unfair. Yeah. But I feel like this story feels very simple in, in the actual plot points. I feel like, okay, your brother's possessed. You need to shut the projector. You shut the projector. You know, not a lot actually happens in terms of... Um, cause and effect and act and react there are quite simple tasks that jesse gets on with and then accomplishes mm-hmm. yeah um speaking with regards to sort like with regards to questions unanswered i've played one of the dlcs i've yet to play the alan wake expansion which i'm still kind of knowing that there are a lot of questions left unanswered i'm kind of worried that they've introduced an already extremely complex story from the universe of alan wake into a story that has not yet concluded or at least have had most of its key core questions answered um the the first dlc i have to say i'm not extremely impressed with it's all right um it deals very much with marshall a lot more um, and i won't go too much into depth in that because well i don't know do you mind having the dlc spoiled or no, I, I, I will say I'm not going to play the DLC. <laughs> no, uh, so go ahead. Yeah, no, just on just on the off chance. Um, but yeah, very much what happens is uh, Marshall. I think, at least to my knowledge, because I haven't played the DLC in so long, I believe Marshall gets corrupted by the hiss and ends up dying. Uh, it's 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 an all right DLC. It's it adds in, it adds in some new elements. But again, it's probably. Maybe this is my fault, or maybe it's that it was kind of forgettable to me, but there's some elements added in that I just don't remember. But the answer is that no, you don't really get many answers to where Darling has gone. But the one key the one key question that I always want answers is, like, who or what the hell is Ati? Because obviously we see him from the beginning of the game, and we already know there's something up with him. And I'm trying to work my head around, is he a living altered world event? Is he, um, you know, similar to Jesse in the fact that he's been touched by Polaris because he doesn't wear a HRA like the rest of the uh, employees uh, at the bureau, um, which and he's still not corrupted by the hiss. He seems to be able to just show up in places and he's able to envisage, you know, the holiday scene where you go to get his cassette player for what is arguably the best scene in the entire game. Um, like, it's, he just seems like an otherworldly being. Um, and I think somebody pointed out to me as well that he constantly refers to Jesse uh, using the Polish word for devil. So I'm kind of like, does Ati know something about Jesse that we don't? Or is like, is there something to do more story-wise with Ati that just hasn't been fleshed out, to be honest? Uh, but I, I don't know. I'm interested to hear what your thoughts are on Ati more as a character because I feel like there's a load that's left unanswered about him. I was so intrigued by Ati at the beginning because Jesse immediately says oh, I feel like Artie is one of the good ones, someone to trust. And I don't know as a player that you get that feeling. I get, you know, sinister vibes of him because he's obviously there's something not quite right about him. Hmm. Um, I feel like he's he's quite enigmatic. When Jesse has a thought and you can play it as a, as a player and you're standing near Artie, Artie will reply to Jesse's thought. Yeah. And Jesse won't 
actually question that actually he can hear her thoughts which i thought was really interesting because it puts him on this level of the the same level as almost polaris or the board in this kind of supernatural but um you know good entity you know he's not the hiss mm-hmm. i feel he it's weird it's definitely weird and the way he when he goes on vacation he's almost in a different plane of existence and you have to go get his cassette player yeah. you know who is arty uh <clears throat> why is he the janitor how long has he always been in the oldest building and was he there before the federal mm. bureau of control you know these are all things which just sets up the mystery but really that we don't have any answers yeah my my sort of theory behind it is and i i would love if it was the case that Ati, you know sort of represents a physical embodiment of the board because obviously you know <laughs> when you first meet Ati's like Ati, oh you're here for the job like you're going to be my assistant and obviously then you become director and Ati still treats you like you're his assistant so either Ati is you know got some big balls on him like to be talking to the director like that <laughs> or Ati, you know kind of notices that on say uh oh what's the way of referring to this sort of the the level or the hierarchy within uh within the oldest house he is ranking above pretty much everyone there so is he some sort of entity or figment of the board yeah i, I feel that's an, an astute observation that he he would be the physical manifestation of the board because he speaks in different languages and with this weird accent and as we know the board makes these incomprehensible sounds that jesse can understand Mm -hmm. and you know (laughs) when you turn up to the to the bureau and he says ah you're here for the job janitor's assistant uh and then you you get the service weapon and i suppose that makes you director Mm. but there's also you know it's a very i'm sorry go on go on i was just gonna say it's a very weird premise for a game (laughs) yeah um I wanted to add as well, like when you first go into the opening foyer, there's obviously just on the balcony above uh, the front desk, there's a picture, I believe. Yeah, there's a picture of Trench, but there's also a picture of Ati with his back turned to the camera sort of. And it's just like the description of it, our bureau at work. And I'm just like, like, because obviously, because at first when I was first playing this, I was like, because, you know, when you first meet Emily Pope, uh, when you kind of clear that room and they come out of the the safe room or whatever and she's kind of like oh how did you get in and you know jesse's just kind of like saying oh yeah the janitor let me in and she almost laughs at that as if like that's ridiculous um and i was kind of thinking in my head i was like but then it's like is because actually doesn't interact with any of the other characters like well maybe i think actually i think um arish mentions him uh you can ask him about Ati, and he talks a little bit about him yeah but I don't know. If yeah, they... they're, they're... Yeah, go on. they're aware of him because uh, in in the conversations or in the in the notes they say that they have to do what Artie says, and he's really weird. But there's a kind of unspoken understanding that he does have authority, and that he, you know, you do what he says, and you know, even though he's this weird, almost nut job sort of thing, hmm. that he he's on their side. And that there's something spiritual or supernatural about him, or you just got to tolerate him, or you know, do what he says. Because I think the the whole area of the game that really fascinates me is that 
uh, particularly amongst amongst the you know non-spiritual characters so let's take out of the equation uh, the board Ati, jesse if you even want to consider in that bracket like there's an element of trust from everyone else that you know the board and Ati and all that have the best interests of humanity at heart i want to say because they don't really like at any point if the board was like oh yes i want to take over earth they could very much easily probably do it uh, but the board seems to not go down that road and jesse is always constantly throughout the story kind of questioning well what is the board's intention like who are they and um, what do they do and I, I believe a long-standing theory i've had on it is that the board is comprised of all the former directors just that you don't hear them clearly as much as you do through the hotline um but maybe that's even a more simplistic way of looking at it because why would they not tell you through the hotline then that they're on the board it's a it's a it's a really interesting premise um and you know it it only raises more questions which for a game like that i think is good in a sense um but obviously it goes a bit too far in some elements where it kind of leaves out key details that you may kind of want to know um Mm. there's very much uh one thing I want to touch on, because I, I mentioned that the characters in the previous episode, I mentioned the characters are a little strange, but, you know, they kind of need to be strange because of the line of work they're in. Um, but what kind of strikes me as weird is that how openly accept, uh, you know, how openly they accept that Jessie is just now in command of the whole place. Like, you know, they've never met her. Uh, she's only just shown up and she's already the director and Emily Pope was like oh yeah nice to have you on board lovely to meet you and all this it's like if that was me like and say I was working there for longer than Jesse I'd be like hold on a second like how are you director like this seems so weird like you're just this randomer so again it kind of goes back to this sort of they almost have this sort of worshipless this worship sort of cult like nature towards the board where they're like oh if the board says it's okay well then it's fine Um, and I don't know if that's kind of a good I, I don't i don't know if it's trying to kind of be more black and white and be like oh yeah well the board is good don't worry about it or they're kind of like saying like there's a weird sense of again uh to kind of you know no pun intended the board kind of has control over these people like they have no say in what goes on they just kind of have to accept it mm. you know it's definitely weird because when <laughs> when they accept you as director it's almost like either your reaction is supposed to be, okay, well, this building and this bureau operates far differently to normal organizations. Mm-hmm. Or you either think, okay, they're using Jesse, and at some point they're going to backstab her, they're going to go against her. But then the, the board and the, the ghost of Trench, I guess, are, are such helpful forces of support along Jesse, contacting her, letting her know what's going on, giving her the resources and the abilities to help her fight the hiss it's it's a strange world that they've conjured up and i feel that you know again remedy are playing on their their aesthetic that they've built up and their own interests but it's definitely a world that doesn't make sense or at least has its own rules mm-hmm. yeah i i think i, I want to oh, sorry go on I yeah, I was going to mention that apart from the main story, I, you might have been going on to this, but the side missions are also have some of their own self-contained stories which are worth playing. And I think one of the really standout ones for me is when you go to investigate a mirror which is an object of power. Mm-hmm. 
and you go through the mirror and everything Jesse says is backwards. And she's thinking, oh, this is weird. And then you end up fighting a mirror kind of evil version of yourself called S-Edge, which obviously Jesse backwards. Um, and she can levitate and she can use telekinesis and it's like fighting yourself. And that was, I played that mission after completing the main game and I thought, wow, that was a really worthwhile uh, little bit of story or a little set piece that was worthwhile. Mm-hmm. I thought, oh, maybe there's something to these missions, but you know, there there were other missions that I went to, and you know, oh, I could have done without that. Yeah, there's um, I I don't know if you played the side mission. I only got to it late game, and I'm trying to remember. It was an object of power, but anyways, and you were kind of placed on this sort of railroad section where you had to chase after a film projector. Um, I don't know if you played that side mission. Did you? Ooh, I don't remember it. No. Yeah, because it's, it's interesting because there's a lot of the sort of um, side missions to containing objects of power that you may miss out on the first try because that was one I left till the very... Like, that was the last thing I completed because uh, I 100% of the game when I first played it. Um, and it's a really fun section. It's the most uh, comparable to the Astray Maze scene out of the rest of the game because it kind of has you on this scripted railroad sequence where you're chasing down an object of power... Uh, whilst trying to dodge various things coming at you so I, I thought that was a really interesting take and i love i just maybe it's just sort of the um like maybe it's just the sort of aesthetic that i'm always drawn to but i love the fact that the objects of power are like these random things like floppy disks or carousel horses or whatnot i just think that's such an interesting uh factor to consider and it's like it's not almost like random stuff that they've picked like because it's not like just a kettle or something it's something that you know you look at it and you're kind of like, oh yeah, I could see how like, just like in your head, like obviously nobody's thinking this when they look at a floppy disk. But like, if you were to say to me, like, oh, what objects would you think would have some weird, like cursed factor to it? And like Carousel Horse, I think would be up there because it just generally, I think Carnival stuff has a creepy uh, sense to it. If you kind of want to put it in that sense, uh, kind of, you know, originating from clowns and going from there and a floppy disk as well, especially I think Casper Darling describes it as like a floppy disk that contains like nuclear codes uh, for Russian warheads. Uh, and it's like, this is a direct replica of it, which I think is really funny. Um, but I just think like sort of parts like that uh, create this instance where it's like, are the objects of power linked to a specific time period of uh, of like objects or are they based on uh, the public's reception or sort of uh, view of those objects it's it's a strange sort of thing of like what makes an object of power what what categorizes it uh, as being worthy or what what even sorry i know i'm just kind of barraging a lot of questions here that kind of don't make a lot of uh, sense but kind of i'm just trying to air my thoughts on it the my un- my understanding was that each of the objects is iconic in its design and uh, knowable by the population so that they're almost fused with this kind of imagine imaginative energy you know everyone knows what a carousel horse is and um i, su- I suppose because the image of one is so ready in the he- in the head of the the public and the connotation like the imaginative connotations around objects like that mm-hmm. uh make them 
powerful. You know, it's, it's about imagination and the importance we place on, on certain objects. So you, you've got, you know, these objects of power called oops and the altered word world events called oars. And so they've got something really unique where they've kind of got these, you know, supernatural phenomenon that happen in certain areas or uh, supernatural objects. And then they say that they don't allow cell phones or uh, any sort of technology mm -hmm. like after the 50s or 60s in the building, like modern computers, because the last time someone walked into the building with their cell phone in their pocket, it exploded. Um, in which, you know, it's just all this kind of funny, interesting lore that just builds to this universe that they've hmm. created. Yeah, definitely. Um, which kind of like makes me imagine then is like, do will at one point objects of power die out or because obviously you know the the idea is that they're they're recognizable in design right and they've got this sort of distinct uh you know idea that you know any member of the populace can understand what it is and what it looks like and so let's say maybe 100 or 200 years down the line like i like say an object of power could be a vhs player people now would know what that was but like 200 years down the line people might be like what the hell's a VHS player? Like, I, I don't know what this looks like. So does the object of power then shift to something completely different or does it just die out? Or see, I, I, I'm obviously throwing these as hypothetical questions because I know obviously, you know, you don't have the answer and I don't have the answer, but I'd be kind of interested to gauge your thoughts on maybe what you think. Definitely feels like a cult of Templars and like this old order, which are still protecting sort of certain rights of the universe that, only exist to them and the larger population is completely unaware of that it definitely mm. feels like they're fighting history fighting modernity with their um with their views and their perspective of the world and i feel like yeah there's there's a certain point where these this order this this bureau with all their knowledge is going to be left behind by the modern world at some point and yet the work they're doing to protect this universe this dimension from a barrage a barrage of supernatural entities is completely valuable and i think it, it plays in well to that sort of um you know shows like x files or or fringe i would say i, I feel like control the control universe would easily hold a show mm -hmm. uh, where you know, you have, you know, it's a classic narrative. You know, you have a you have a bureau that investigates and contains supernatural events, um, hmm. and yeah, the the idea that they're slightly retro and and being left behind as these sort of weird, uh, <laughs> weird eccentrics with this love of kind of old. Um, memorabilia is you know part of it that makes that charm yeah that that's true and i think as you mentioned this could well hold a show and the one thing that always kind of pops into my mind with this is um i don't know if you've ever heard of the show warehouse 13 no i haven't so pretty much i i'm not wholly familiar with it i've watched a few episodes of it and i need to get back to it at some stage because it, control kind of brought back my love for it and pretty much the premise of warehouse 13 was that there's this obviously this warehouse um in which there's housed these uh, myriad of sort of 
um, again, for lack of a better word, objects of power that seem to be found by this government organization, and they kind of just keep them there. I think I think the best way of describing it would be similar to that ending scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark, where the U.S. government kind of uh, they kind of hide the ark away. I'm I'm assuming you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. Sorry. I probably should have checked. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, the amount of uh, reference in things like Family Guy as, as well, you know, who isn't aware of, of that scene in the warehouse? Hmm. Yeah, so stuff like um, stuff like that, I feel like it's definitely, as I mentioned, it's inspired a lot by SCP, the SCP universe. And I think it definitely takes its inspiration off already established uh, pieces of media. And with that in mind, I really really enjoy it uh based on that factor because it's something that's mysterious but it's also something i'm familiar with like it's stuff that like i don't know what it is about this sort of like looking into an edge of a different reality that seems grounded that really intrigues me i i hope that makes sense is what i'm trying to get at um it's like very much that i could like while i whilst i know the world of control is obviously fiction I could imagine if an altered world event uh, was like causing levitation or even the fridge scene uh, happened to have some sort of paranormal or supernatural activity related to it. That would be more believable to me than say like, I don't know, something out of Star Wars, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean I'm never going to look at a rubber duck again in the same way. I'm going <laughs> to think, you know, that's clearly an item with, with too much imaginative power. I'm going to have to stay away from it. Or, you know, even when I'm pulling a light switch, I'm like, I'm going to think, oh, am I going to be transported to some different <laughs> To the reality? Ocean View Motel, yeah. <laughs> oh, God, please take me away anywhere but there. Yeah. I actually, um, before we move on, I, I want to mention one thing about the Ocean View Hotel, which I think is absolutely hilarious, is that if you pick up a document um, halfway, I think it's, it's near enough to the beginning of the game, it looks kind of... A, you haven't yet gone to the Ocean View Motel, but there's a reference in it. It's like, yeah, we found out where we go. We found this Ocean View Motel. It's a bit strange. It's in like the middle of this really landlocked area, which I think is absolutely hilarious that there just happens to be this really random Ocean View Motel that has no ocean near it at all. And that it's actually a real place because there's one point where you travel there and you can visibly hear people knocking on the door being like, here, I don't think there's anyone in here. Can we please get in? So this this building is obviously just hiding in plain sight, as per se. And it's surprising that nobody has ever, you know, attempted to try and get in. Or maybe they have, and we just don't know. That's brilliant. I, I really wish that they would tone down the collectibles or perhaps make the interface where you have kind of the research and... You know, because when you go into your collectibles bar, you've got a series of different headings that contain different documents, and it's absolute murder to navigate if you've picked up like ten collectibles and you don't know where they've gone. I feel like if they were just to cut down and keep the interesting ones in, so that you know, and when I said with the medium, I, I read every collectible because there wasn't too many, and they always felt uh, pertinent to the story or what I was doing in the game. Yeah. you know if if they could keep those interesting ones in as i got to those areas or experienced what they were talking about i would be so much more happier with this game but the mm -hmm. the fact that there are so many about so many different things i, I miss out on absolute gems i feel so hmm. yeah no um 
this uh, the story i think in general like there's some really really good stuff in it like there's like there's some stuff that like there's there's sort of i i like to imagine there's always a threshold when playing a game where you first start um you know kind of you start the game and if it's a narrative story you have to focus yourself and almost say to yourself i'm going to be immersed in this and for maybe the first half an hour or so you're kind of operating under this sort of false sense of immersion but once you kind of or at least good games once you get to a certain point maybe an hour in and you've kind of been going through the mechanics of the game and once you're familiar with them and you're looking at the story good games will be able to immerse you in that universe and in that world and i think control does that but i think it's the small documents you pick up that relate to story stuff not the sort of mundane stuff that really solidify the world you're in and kind of base it in reality and that's what i love about it so much i think it's just so rich with uh, with narrative that i really wish as you say um was pushed more uh in favor of say this large amount of collectibles that are difficult to find and i also one thing i want to know as well i wish the hotline um discussions i wish that they were uh, presented in their entirety without me having to go into the menu and then listen to them uh, because you get like little snippets of the hotline as it becomes available to you i wish they just play the whole thing and i could continue on my journey because oftentimes you'll open up your directory go to your hotline watch it and then spend like maybe two three maybe four minutes walking to an area with maybe one combat encounter in between but i think it would be brilliant uh, not filler but it would uh, engage the player whilst they're traveling to the next point of uh, location, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, you've reminded me of a bug that I came across. Uh, I imagine it's a bug where audio wouldn't play sometimes and I'd be reading the subtitles and and Jesse or Trench would not be reading um, the the script or or the the audio wouldn't be playing. Hmm. So I'd be watching kind of Trench's head, you, you know, uh, how there's like a acting shadow uh, whenever he talks. And I'd have to read the subtitles because the audio wasn't playing. Or there was there was a cutscene very close to the end of the game where Jesse had like a really important line to say. And I was reading it instead of hearing it. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if you came across it or if I just had a few more bugs than usual. But think- it, it was it was strange. Yeah, no, I think I was lucky enough that I didn't encounter too many bugs, bar maybe, as I mentioned before, and this isn't really a bug, it's more a fault of the game's hardware, there were some frameware drops. Uh, I think I think this game, like, we talk about it being visually stunning, um, and I'll get, I'll, we, we can get back to sort of the bugs in a second, but I just kind of want to touch on this point one more time, is that while this game is visually stunning, I, I don't know if, again, the hardware of the Xbox One and PS4 cannot handle it, especially um, at... 60 fps you're very much going to be dropping in heavy points down to like uh low 40s high 30s um and that's all that's um they i think remedy know that now because the the ultimate edition uh, contains a feature to either play on 60 fps uh with you know good setting of graphics you know solid you know you know using the hardware of the series x or you can play in 30 fps with ray tracing um some people were saying that was made to accommodate for the playstation because i think as we've seen with all the games that have gotten a next gen upgrade the series x and even in some cases the series s have had superior um uh, have had superior hardware with regards to frame rate uh, as opposed to the playstation 5 and 
Uh, Control is a game that struggles to run on last-gen consoles on its own, so I was worried about... I Not that I was worried. I think if this had released on Series X, you'd expect it to run uh, as you play it, you know, kind of near flawlessly. You'd expect that, but I think... It was a game kind of before its time. It's almost, it's almost, I would say, comparable to Crisis. You know, a lot of people, when the original Crisis came out, struggled to run it on the best of PCs. You needed to have this monster of a machine in order to run Crisis. And as class as a game that is, I think it blocked a lot of people from entry into that game. Uh, and as, as much as I love uh, visionary uh, directors when it comes to games and whatnot, there needs to be a point where you need to say to yourself... Yes, visual spectacle is good, and all these things happening at the same time is good, but tone it down so that it's actually playable. Um, sorry, I kind of veered off there when you were talking about bugs. No. Um, so no, if you want to continue on with it, I'm fine. I would have loved to play this game in 60 frames per second. Hmm. Uh, you know, I really value games where it's looking smooth and without, you know, I don't have to move the camera and experience like some kind of weird i don't know it's so much more noticeable playing at 60 or even 120 how smooth mm-hmm. the camera moves you know don't make me play at 30 um that's that said it's not cyberpunk <laughs> yes yeah that is true um but yeah i've i feel like this game the people who interact and engage with say the dialogue options with the characters and all the extended lore and and the things you can pick up i think those people are going to enjoy this game the most Mm -hmm. the people who are really into this this setting this genre this this type of story yeah i feel like if you're going in like me and wanting uh some kind of really refined bioshock-esque combat experience um it's nice to fly around and shoot things, but it's not predominantly a a combat game, I would say. Mm-hmm. I think it tries to be, though, is the thing. Um, and and I, I can't fault them for doing that. I think that's obviously an admirable thing to incorporate. Because Remedy are known for sort of third-person uh, shooter mechanics in a narrative-driven setting. Uh, you know, we've seen that with Alan Wake, Quantum Break, as as you mentioned in the previous episode, Max Payne, which I think does it flawlessly. I think the combat in Max Payne 3 is probably the best aspect of that game. Um, Although I think Max Payne 3 was actually by Rockstar. Oh, what? Yeah, see. Yeah, see, that's why I forgot it the first time, because I remember thinking. But again, sorry, I, I want to kind of point off, I think the overall premise of Max Payne 3 is very much adapted from Remedy's initial outlook on it. Um but, but like things like so let's take for example alan wake uh, and there's going to be uh, i suppose no it's not a spoiler for alan wake it's talking about mechanics um alan wake is a very good mechanic in which with regards to um you don't feel overpowered as alan um, it very much always feels like you're on the back foot when it comes to combat encounters and this is coming from a game that the enemy ai have no weapons at all to fight against well no um bullet weapons uh sorry i should say uh there's uh, you know a plethora of uh you know brutish bats and uh and sides and whatnot that the enemy uh, npcs have but when even though you have say a shotgun i think at one point you have a flare gun uh, and you have a pistol and you know your torch you never feel 
at least on paper, while you should have the upper hand to somebody who's holding a bat, you never feel that air of you know superiority with regards to combat and whatnot. Uh, and in control, I think it's very much the opposite way around. You're given a plethora of, um, well, I say a plethora, and you're given a lot of abilities to fight enemy NPCs, not as much or as diverse as I would have hoped, as I mentioned previously. Uh, and the game difficulty in this sense never makes you feel like you're on the back foot, bar maybe uh, some of the boss encounters with regards to, uh, and I'm, I'm not sure if you did this side quest, but the big fungus monster at the bottom of the pit, um, that's an absolute hellhole to try and kill. Um, there's the one as well where you have to launch clocks into its mouth. Um, I don't I, I'm sorry, are these ones ringing any bells to you? No, I admittedly I didn't do most of the side missions because I did I did things like I did the jukebox and I did a, a couple mm-hmm. of them, but ultimately I, 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 I found it too tedious to to entertain doing the the side missions because I thought that having all the locations uh, unlocked, I would be able to navigate my way around, and then I wanted to do the the fighting or the training course. Sorry, mm-hmm. and there was this red hiss wall blocking me i was just you know i still can't find my way around the uh, the bureau so i'm just going to give up (laughs) yeah i think um what i would say what i would say to people wanting to play this game get the most out of it is once you have everywhere on the map uh, revealed uh, so that there's no question marks over areas uh, as to what they are that's when you will have encountered i would imagine the majority of uh gameplay encounters um and i think again it comes back to um the the reason this game doesn't have a a objective marker and it's kind of a detriment in that sense is that uh, players who say are on the fence like yourself uh about you know going in and playing more of it are missing out on some of probably the best aspects of side quests and which which do and I, i suppose in relation to the main story um uh, combined very well with you know you're, but it's not presented in, to the player in very many sense i think uh the only real major ones that you ever feel are kind of presented to you well in a scripted setting are the core um abilities that you're given so like dash levitate uh siege all those other bits um but like extra side quests to gather altered objects yes you can get them but they're not necessary uh, there's some there's some actually there's some side missions as well that I absolutely despise I, I know I love Ati to death but like some of his uh, his missions for like doing the janitor's work and I know janitor's work is meant to be mundane at the best of times but there's one uh, I don't know did you do all of Ati's jobs actually no I I tried to uh, clear the, the clog or, or whatever and I was a bit unsure of what to do because I was shooting this thing in in the in the pipeworks and it was retracting and I thought I'd done it and then I still had the mission, so mm. no I I didn't do many Vati's. Yeah, there's a, there's one of Vati's missions that is um like uh oh, where is the area? It's down where you go to clog you know uh, to declog the the fans or whatever. But there's an area there, a very open area. Uh, where you have to shoot these like little sort of balls of puss and they're so difficult to see at the best of times that like i had to look up a guide i think you have to shoot like 10 of them and that that those sorts of side missions are tedious and they detract from the what are otherwise quite well established side quests you do actually at the end of Ati's 
side quests you get some custom outfitted janitor's uniform which is i suppose if you're if you want to get it like i suppose for anyone who's going for 100 percent, it's worth it but i don't know if Ati's quests are very much worth that yeah i i will say um when you're discussing kind of md's past games i was thinking you know clearly they they do like to set up combat games with bullet time and you know cool abilities um I still don't feel that any game has done that better than Max Payne 3 or John Woo's Stranglehold on the 360. Yeah. Um, you know, they're trying new things. You know, Quantum Break, uh, they, they were trying to kind of bridge the gap between video games and um, film or, or series media. I think that Control tries to build... Uh, an expanded universe in a game which is also an interesting take i just don't feel that their execution in either of them has been particularly successful but they they've always been interesting i feel mm-hmm. yeah there's so the... you know yeah, sorry, go at on. least they're doing new and at least they're doing new and different things i was going to say yeah definitely for sure um and i think it's it's always a, a testament to remedy that you know, we might think uh, on certain sections that, you know, they lack in certain qualities, but they do keep people coming back for more. And uh, that's probably the most important thing when it comes to games. You know, like, like let's take, for example, like last week when we were talking about the medium. It wasn't a game that I was particularly enthralled by. Uh, but, you know, you obviously had a very sort of, uh, I would say, a, a considerate love for the story of it with sort of an acknowledgement that some of its gameplay mechanics were uh, subpar in certain areas. But, like, put it on the other foot for this week you know i'm a huge fan of the story of control and i love the the factor it brings it in granted i think there's some elements it could be improved in um and i think it's very much one of those games that either gets you hooked or you just kind of say this is just not for me and i don't want to play it yeah definitely so um i think unless there's anything else you want to add we're on the 50 minute mark now um if no a- i i think i th- think we've done very well to be honest yeah there's some um there's i uh, there's definitely some good questions uh to be asked um knowing remedy's track record of doing uh sequels they, they don't seem to be very good at it uh considering it's been now over 11 years since alan wake first came out and all we've gotten is a dlc um but saying that uh, maybe there is a, a future for control as maybe a sequel or maybe we'll see even more ex- expanded upon dlc if that hasn't already been ruled out uh, for those of you listening at home who have played Control and maybe have some of the answers to our burning questions or even have some of the questions of your own, we'd appreciate you getting in contact with us either on our social medias linked down below or in the comments section. Um, next week, we'll be looking at Yakuza 0, as mentioned in the previous episode. Uh, so if you have any thoughts on that, please uh, feel free to email into us on our business email link below or again on any of the social medias. Uh, and with that, if there's nothing else to add from you, Connor, we'll end it there. Yeah, that's fine. Thank you for listening. Perfect. We'll talk to you all next week.